we're going to talk about Ephesians today. So we've already started last week with Jeremy doing a really nice introduction, kind of capstoning what, um, or I guess outlining what the book of Ephesians, and we're going to tackle over these next, I guess, 12, 13 weeks. But we've got the object ahead of us to look at only six verses. So we're going to dive into that in a little bit, but um, I'll open us up with prayer, and we'll go ahead and get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, the weather, albeit cold. Thank you for uh, the sunshine and the, uh, the beauty that we see in your creation day in, day out, that we get to revel in your majesty, revel in your glory. Father, just be with us today as we go through and unpack the first few verses of Ephesians, but this, this glorious um, reminder to give you praise for what you have done and who we are in you. I just uh, pray that you would give me uh, words to say that would be truthful and that would be accurate to the scripture, and may it be an encouraging discussion for us all. I pray that you would give us ears and hearts open to listen to what uh, whoever's uh, delivering the message today to uh, to be able to uh, just just lay on our hearts and lay on our minds and lay on our ears, Father, and just uh, let us have a, a great discussion and be bring glory and honor and praise to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so last week we've already opened up and discussed the importance of the city of Ephesus. So remembering that Ephesians, albeit there was some um, dialogue and some discussion about whether or not it was written to the church of Ephesus or to a broad number of churches, regardless of that, um, we talked about the importance of the city of Ephesus, uh, the Pauline authorship of Ephesians, and then how God's word given through Paul continues to be ever so relevant, not only in the cultural time, but in our time today. And it so rings true as we continue to unpack the first six verses of Ephesians and the rest of it, you'll see how applicable this word is to us in today's time. So as a, br a brief recap, just as we kind of think about where we were and kind of where we're going, um, Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia and it was on the west coast of Asia Minor. So it was modern-day Turkey. It was a among one of the most five prominent cities in the empire in the first century, along major trade routes. It was a really prominent city uh, in the time. And it was, from Paul's perspective, it was a central focus of evangelizing the western part of Asia Minor and also the location where Paul's preaching of Christ actually entered into a conflict with really important trade dependent upon the pagan worship that was going on in the time. So there was a lot of cultural context and a lot of cultural influence in the city of Ephesus at the time. And if you look back to Acts 19, you actually see that sort of dialogue about what was going on between the, um, uh, the, the crafts makers, the, uh, the, the pagan idol makers, and uh, the, the, the time. So it was really a, a central focus of Paul's evangelization and also where um, there was a lot of uh, the conflict um, based on that, that important trade um, and the pagan worship. But regardless of whether debate about whether Paul authored this specifically to the church of Ephesus or to a general letter to a number of churches in the regions, its implications to the context of the day at the time and to us are ever so relevant. And we'll kind of dig into that because there are so many reminders of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us, what he's purchased for us on the cross. And we get so many glorious reminders of that in this just short letter to the Ephesians. And so we have this beautiful epistle that's a glorious summary of four primary sections. I've got them laid out here. And if we kind of look through, this is sort of a framework that was put forth by John Stott, but it kind of lays out, this is what uh, Jeremy was alluding to last week. We're going to kind of go through what the, the breakdown and the framework of the book of Ephesians are. So if you look at the first chapter um, to, to the second, so 1, 3, to 2, 10, for those of you that are curious, 
we talk about the new life. This is the new life that God gives to everyone who believes in his son. The second that we hear after that new life that we've been given, and Paul reminding us of that, then we talk about the new society. For those of you that are interested, chapters 2 through 3. And in that new society, this is what God has created through the saving work of Christ. What Christ has purchased on the cross, the new society that's God created through Christ's redemptive work. Then we have the new standards. We'll talk about this in a second. 4, 1 through 520. Just if you want to take notes or see the breakdown. The new standards that God expects, that God has for us to live by in this new society. And then finally, new relationships. In the 5th and 6th chapters, we have the new relationships. That's 624 for those of you that can't read my uh, wonderful penmanship. Um, the new relationships into which God brings believing men and women. So what do you notice about this structure? This is a leading question. This is probably one of those what am I thinking questions. They're all like, I know, I know. It's unfair, but what am I thinking? But what do you notice if you look at the first two and the second two? Jeremy alluded to it last week, and we're going to see it time and time again as we study Ephesians. And frankly, as we look at Paul, what do you see about the framework in here? If I say standards down here and life up here, does that give you a clue? What do you see about this particular framework? Regeneration or anything else. Yeah. We are reminded who we are and what Christ has done for us before we're given the instructions and the reminder of how to live. And that's going to be a continual, perpetual theme from Ephesians, from a lot of Paul, and frankly, a lot of Scripture. But we're going to be continuously reminded. The indicatives precede, excuse me, the indicatives precede the imperatives. And the poignant reminder of who we are in Christ and the implication of Christ's work on the cross and the riches that are already ours in Christ, that precedes the reminder of how we are to live in the light of this new calling. And that's so important because oftentimes if we flip that paradigm and we just read it and we say, oh my gosh, I can't live up to these standards. I don't belong in Christ because I can't live up to these standards. You have to remember we are reminded before of what Christ has purchased for us and who we are in Christ before we're given those standards, those imperatives to live by. So that's one just general. You know, we'll sort of dig into this as we continue to go. But, and we'll, we'll actually read the first six verses here in a minute, but I'm sort of laying the framework, laying the foundation before we get into it. And the other thing to keep in mind uh, while we're studying Ephesians, it's really interesting, is the repetition of the word walk. So if you look in chapter 2... You know, we can look at that. Um, we're reminded that, we're, that we formally walked in, form, that we formally um, walked in trespasses and sin, but we now have been created in Christ for good works, which God had prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So we're going to, you see, as, you, as we go through Ephesians, and you know, we've only got the six, first six verses ahead of us. But as we continually look through the rest of this epistle, you'll see this parallel of walk before and walk after we're reminded of who we are in Christ and what God has done for us. And the example here, Christ created in Christ Jesus for the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this comparison of walk is again repeated time and time again in the epistle. All right. 
that's our framework. That's kind of where we are. So we've got the first six verses ahead of us. So I'll read the first six verses, and then we'll have um, others sort of read uh, some other scripture that we have. But Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, if you want to follow along. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. So that's the first six verses. There's a lot packed in those first six verses, and we're going to go through that. So just another sort of commentary note or sort of note about this first section of Ephesians. If you actually look at verses 3 through 14, and, you know, maybe I'll read that just, just for uh, purposes. So we read the first six, so let's keep going down through 14. So we've got through the first six, and we'll read through 14. I know that's not part of our lesson today. I don't want to steal the thunder of who's teaching next, but there's an interesting point that... Um, some commentators make. Uh, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, those are the first 14 verses. Somebody pull up Romans 8, 28 through 30, and read that. What we're going to see is that these first verses 3 through 14 in Ephesians, it's one long sentence in Greek, and Jeremy could probably get up here and write it all out for us if we really wanted to. No, you don't want to do that? Okay, all right. So, long sentence in Greek can be viewed as an expansion on the praise of God's purpose that's seen in verses 28 through 30. So we're going to make this comparison. So whoever's got Romans 8, 28 through 30, if you want to read that. This is going to be a very familiar passage to everyone. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Thank you. So we see uh, the Father who elects, the Son who redeems, and the Spirit who seals. These are kind of the three facets of this particular Romans 28. And if you look at verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians, we hear praise given to the Father who has elected us, Verses 7 through 12 of what we read in Ephesians, that's praise to the Son who redeems us. And then verses 13 and 14 is praise to the Spirit who seals. 
So there's parallels in what Paul does in his opening words to the Church of Ephesians that he does in other texts like Romans, making these glorious parallels of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and the work that they've done. So let's get back to what we have to talk about today, verses 1 through 6. So first off, I'm curious your thoughts on just how Paul opens this up. What, what, how, what does Paul say when he opens this up, like in verse 1 and 2? This is not a trick question. This is straightforward. Well, what, what does he say? He says he's an apostle of Christ by the will of God. What, what kind of weight does that carry? All the weight. Yeah, it carries all the weight. It's a simple question. The, re- the reason I, I, I point this out, though, is because you think about where Paul is preaching. He's preaching in the city of Ephesus, this major trade route, this major place with pagan worship, with culture, with education, with so many, with the confluence of culture there. Paul is coming there on the authority of Christ. He's the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And it's important. It seems so uh, subdued in the text, and it seems so minor, but if you think about it, he opens it up by saying that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus because that sets everything up in the rest of the text to say, I'm speaking on authority of Christ Jesus. I feel, I, he opens up many of the epistles this way, doesn't he? Um, many of the letters to churches, he opens up with that same type of framework. But he says, then to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, then he begins this little glorious induction. But just remember, it's important from a cultural context and thinking about what's in the scripture and why it's important to the to how it was written in that day sort of sheds more light on the weight of the words that are on the page. So I think that's just an interesting thing to think about when you think about uh, the way that Paul opened it up. So an interesting thing. Yeah, please. As the early church yet kind of received the canon of Scripture, and then a little later on uh, had to argue around what books uh, actually were part of canon. One of the prime tests was, was it written by an apostle? Right. Or someone very closely associated with the apostle? Right. Because, you know, there's other, um, there's other um, uh, um, gospels that are written. You know, the, um, the, the gospel of um, was one of the most recent ones. Anyway, there's gospels and there's epistles that were written that were not included in canon. And they didn't meet sort of these different litmus tests that were put forth by the early church fathers and the early individuals that created the canon. And, you know, we talked about this, the canonicity of Scripture, in several lectures ago that, that I did in one of the, um, I think it was the lessons on the Bible overall and the application of the Bible. But that's, it's such an important point to think about because even, even the smallest words in Scripture can actually have a great influence on the overall meaning. Okay, so verse 3. So, again, this is a leading, not a leading question, but this is a straightforward question. Just trying to foster some audience participation. So what are we promised? according to verse 3. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. (laughs) Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Wow. (laughs) Comprehending that, that, that's quite weighty. Like, if we're promised every spiritual blessing, that's how Paul opens it up, that we're promised every spiritual blessing, that's quite impressive. So, you know, Solely relating to these first six verses, we can break these down to a framework of sort of three things. That we're blessed with Christ's blessings, we're blessed with Christ's status, 
and then we're blessed through Christ alone. And again, I, I think it's so important to remember because what we're looking at right now are the blessings by which we have received through Christ's work on the cross and which God has done for us when he called us into his family and adopted us as firstborn. And that's a very poignant thing for Beth and I right now because we're going through an adoption process, if you don't know. But it's, it's so, the, the, the context of adoption and the, the, what that means is so critical. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that because he mentions adoption in these first you know, six verses. But we've, we're blessed with Christ. We're going to break each of these down. Blessed with Christ's blessing, blessed with his status, and blessed through Christ alone. But again, it's so important to remember, too, reminded of who we are before our actions and before how we're supposed to live in the light of this new calling. I mean, how many of you, I don't know, play sports, play music? Um, I mean, it even happened to me most recently um, in flying. You know, I was incredibly nervous before my practical exam or incredibly nervous before a concert, or incredibly nervous before a particular performance. Now again, don't read into what I'm about to say because there's nothing that we can do to change our status in Christ. That's not what I'm about to say, but the analogy makes sense. You have to be reminded sometimes of your abilities, of your capabilities, of what you've done to put into the work that you're gonna be able to achieve, but the nerves get to us. We have to be reminded frequently of what we've done before we actually go do that thing. And it's the same here in the scripture. We have to be reminded of what Christ has done for us before we can even think about according to living according to the way that we're called to do. All right, so let's reread verse 3 because we just did. Um, or we, we were going to talk about verse 3 in particular. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So one of the things that this verse really hits at is our union with Christ. How many times do you think, you could probably count it if you wanted to, but how many times in verses 3 through 12 do you think Paul refers to our union with Christ? In just 12 verses... Well, actually, I just said that on accident 12 times. It's not 12 verses. It's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like eight or nine verses. But in, he, 12 times alludes to the way that we have a spiritual union with Christ. It's repeated time and time and time again in these verses. It is in Christ the Father has blessed us. It is in the Beloved that we have been blessed. It is in Christ we have redemption through his blood. We are unified with Christ because of his death, his blood, his resurrection, we are unified with him. And what does Ephesians say about whom we are unified with? We talked, we said, we said Christ. Let's go to verses 20 to 23, because it really, really highlights the one with whom we are united. Somebody read that, verses 20 through 23 of Ephesians <coughs> chapter 1. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. Thanks. That highlights the one with whom we are united. Remember, we're united with Christ. His majesty, his authority, we are united with that. And that is an incredible thing to comprehend. And it's an incredible comfort when we realize that we have no control, that we have, that we're going to be failures, that no matter what we do, we're not going to do it to a standard that Christ would approve or that God would approve. And frankly, when this world comes crashing down on us, nothing seems to go right. We are unified in Christ and we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we'll kind of unpack that. I love what Michael Horton says about the pervasiveness of the union of Christ in our lives, not being just a singular moment, but something we should continually and perpetually reflect on throughout our entire Christian life. He says that the union with Christ is not to be understood as a moment in the application of salvation to believers, not as a moment. Rather, it's a way of speaking about the way in which believers share in Christ in eternity by our election, in past history, by redemption, in the present, by calling, justification, sanctification, and in the future, by glorification. Our subjective inclusion in Christ occurs when the Spirit calls us to Christ and gives us the faith to cling to him for all of his riches. In perpetuity, not a singular moment, we are unified with Christ, and that carries with us throughout our entire Christian walk from present or past to present to future, we are unified with Christ. And because we are in union with Christ, we are privy to all of his riches. And it, it so warms the heart and encourages the heart, the Christian weary soul, when we know that God so deeply desires to love us that because of our union with his son, that our adoption into his family is firstborn, that we're privy to share in the riches of his blessings. Christ has been risen from the grave with power over sin and death, and his power and privileges exceed anything, anything on this earth. And we can reflect the wonder and the majesty and the purity and the power and beauty of all who he is. When we're hiking, who likes to hike? You know, going out, seeing a beautiful sunset, reveling in the majesty and the glory of Christ. We are unified. We can... We can be one <laughs> with our creator, with our maker, and we're unified with Christ. We can reflect on the wonder, the majesty, the purity, the power, and the beauty of who he is. You know, verse 3 also reminds us that we're in heaven with Christ. Because it says in verse 3, blessed in Christ with blessed us in Christ, excuse me, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. And this kind of reminds us of one of those um, already-not-yet phenomenons. And we'll get to that. But if you're interested in, um, this is the little guide that we're using. And Brian Chappell has a companion commentary. Um, and it's really pastoral, but it was just incredibly encouraging for me to read through the chapter on this. Because he has so many um, personal stories. But some of the things he says just really, really hits so deep in my heart. Here's what he said about this um, union with Christ and being blessed with every spiritual blessing, including the heavenly places. He said, just as hell is a total conscious separation from the blessings of God, 
the spiritual dimension of heaven is a total and conscious union with God. Again, union with Christ. In our union with Christ, we are already partakers of this spiritual reality, even though it's not fully realized until we're in our glorified state and freed of our mortal bodies. That's when it's going to be fully realized. But we're living in this already, not yet. And we talk about this so often. We talk about that in the context of sanctification. We talk about it in the context here that we're already, but not yet. That we will be fully realized of all of the beauties and glories when we are seated at the right hand of the Father, glorified in eternity. And frankly, you know, he, he shared a simple story of uh, walking through the woods in a cabin or walking through the woods to a cabin. They took a, a, an, an annual summer vacation to a cabin in the woods. And they were walking through the cabin, and they knew it pretty much by heart, every step, every uh, place to go, because they had visual landmarks. But it got really dark at night, and they sort of lost their footing, and everyone was a little freaked out, but he kind of kept his composure because he was, you know, focused on the task at hand, and he finally admitted that he didn't know where he was, but as he looked around, he saw a glimpse of light from the cabin. And it's a simple analogy to remind us that we're no strangers to pain, to difficulties. I have no idea. You know, we say this, you know, Ryan Jeremy says it in church on Sunday or, or from the pulpit on Sundays. And we have no idea the pain, the difficulties, the struggle, the hardship that, that anyone's going through. But we're no strangers to it because this world <laughs> is not the way it was meant to be. And we're no strangers to pain, to difficulties, to struggles, to hardships. However, in Christ, we have a strong and firm hope that we are already home and that we're reminded that we're adopted to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, that we're part of that heavenly family, that we will be received. And we can press forward with a strong confidence to be courageous because we know where our home lies, where our hope lies, and where are not yet, that's where it's going to become forevermore. And in this, just in this verse, we hear that. And we see that repeated again and again through Ephesians. Before we get to the part of how we should live these standards and relationships, we have to be reminded of who we are, what Christ has done, and what we have been promised. And Paul, certainly through his hardships, could speak to this. And I think we can relate to this. Okay, before we move on to verses 4, 5, and 6 in our last, you know, 15, 20 minutes, any comments, any thoughts? Jeremy, any other takeaways from your perspective on that verse? It's just, the, the commentary was, I, I would encourage anybody, it's a very approachable commentary if you're interested, and it's, it was very warming to my heart to read that chapter, but anything from your perspective? Or any, anybody else from verse 3? Just the, the word blessed, of course, throughout this text just stands out. And I kind of think back to... Uh, you know, what we see in the beginning books of Scripture of the patriarchs blessing their sons, um, just the importance of kind of that uh, that blessing uh, from a, from a father to his children. Yeah, and just it's like it's not earned. It's not not anything that you you worked for. You're getting to adoption. Too, yeah, but it's just like you've just been lavished. He's lavishing us in his many blessings. 
Absolutely. And he just he just keeps going through it. I mean, we get that, the blessings, and then we talk about adoption, and then we talk about how it's nothing because of what we've done. Nothing. Nothing because of our human abilities can do this. And that's in verse 4, 5, and 6. And we'll talk about that. And like you said, just latching us with this. Yeah, Josh. The fact that past tense has already happened. Yeah. And I remember when Doug was here talking about Ephesians, he was saying that, you know, I, I ask God for something, and I don't have it yet. He says, no, you don't need it. You have everything that you need. So it's like, regardless of how we feel, the truth is what the Word says. Yeah, absolutely. In the past tense, it's already happened. That's exactly right. Okay, so blessed with Christ's status and blessed by Christ alone are the two sort of framework ideas we have left. So verses 4 and 5, we'll revisit that just to give the context for what we're going into. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. All right. Two primary benefits or blessings that are given to us through our union, and we talked about multitudes, but here in these particular two verses we have his sanctity or his holiness and his sonship and those are two incredibly important things you know it, it's so again I, i'm just astounded by what we have been promised and given by what christ has done for us and what paul is telling us in these simple six verses because verse four teaches us that we're chosen we're chosen to be holy and blameless in his sight and this dual description it affirms the benefits of our union with Christ. And think of it in this context. We've had something removed from us, i.e. our sin and our guilt status, and we have something supplied. So we have a removal and we have supply. So by the death and propitiation, big word of Christ, our sin has been removed from us. Our guilt stain by his propitiation, by him putting himself forth in our place, our deserved place. Our sin, our guilt, our shame, all of that is removed. And we're counted as holy and blameless. That's just like mind-blowing. I mean, we say it every time. It's a core foundation of the theology of this church. But we have to teach it to ourselves day in and day out. Because who's ever felt guilty? Who's ever felt shameful? We're human. <laughs> it's who we are. And we're going to be the hardest on ourselves. But when it comes to this, when it comes to our vertical relationship and our position with Christ or God, we are holy and blameless. So, okay, our sin and our guilt's removed, then what's supplied? What's supplied? His righteousness. His righteousness. The righteousness that Christ earned that he did himself. He earned that because he did the actions. We didn't do a stinking thing. Nothing. In fact, we messed it all up. From the beginning to the end, we're going to mess it up. Christ did it perfect. And the righteousness that he earned is given to us. That's, it's incredible. And furthermore, so we've been given his sanctity, but his sonship. Furthermore, we're granted adoption as his sons through Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. 
So importantly, you know, adoption, everyone knew what that was, but in, in the cultural time, it was really important because the head of the family would actually adopt a son, often a grown man, and he would pass on the family name and the inheritance. So they understood the weight of adoption. They understood what that meant. That guy didn't do anything, but he was brought into that family and given the status and given the, the passing on of the family name and the inheritance. And that's what we get to do. We are adopted into Christ's family as firstborn. It carried such a significant weight, and the people knew. Like when Paul was speaking to these people, and he used words like adoption, they knew. They brought back that cultural context of what it means to adopt somebody into their family and pass on the inheritance. It was that much more weight to them to say, I, you, are adopted into his family as firstborn. Got to go back to the London Baptist Confession, because that's one of our... our Cornerstone documents. I don't want to steal from whoever's doing the adoption section um, a couple weeks down the road uh, once we get through this section. But I want to read the London Baptist Confession because I think it really encapsulates what we're talking about here. All those that are justified, God conferred in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God have his name put on them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Because we are adopted into the family, we enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, we can come to him and say, Father. And we can do that without fear of rejection because we are 100% accepted by no merit of our own. And I know we hear this in such variety of ways in this church, but this little six verses in Ephesians reminds us of that glorious promise that we have. Yeah, it's just incredible, you know, thinking about adoption and what that truly means and bringing somebody in to your family and loving them with the no merit of their own. And it's just incredible because no matter how terrible we think we are, we're not far enough from God's love. And it's just striking. Please. No. <clears throat> That adoption, as the same God is telling me, Jesus said when he was alive, he says it's expedient for me to go. When I go, I send to the Holy Spirit. He took all of our sin, and then he gave us his righteousness through his spirit. Because when he gave us that Holy Spirit of comfort, he lead us on that righteousness. He become part of him. Yeah. He become in us. Absolutely. So that's why he adopted us by the power of his Holy Spirit that he gave us and restored us. Amen. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why I keep thinking, oh, that, that's his spirit that is not us, it's him, his Holy Spirit within Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else about adoption? Anything else about those verses? Yeah, one of the things that strikes me when you think about adoption, you guys probably are. Yeah. There's no DNA. No. However, 
it's exactly the same privileges as if it were. Absolutely. So I think it's a really cool distinction that it's not infusion, it's imputation. Mm -hmm. It is added to something that you are completely not. You know, just a, a further analogy from that. It's so true. You know how God shapes and molds our hearts and our spirits according to his purpose because we're adopted. We're not, like you said, you know, there's no, there's no DNA, but we're adopted into that. But we are changed, right? We are changed because of what God has done and is doing and is doing and working in our lives. We're learning about adopting children from hard places. And one of the, the, the neuropsychiatrists that was um, writing one of these books from a Christian perspective, he said, um, you know, they had parents come up to them and say, you know, but we're not the biological parents. And he said... He said, one of the things that we're learning is that these children have neural pathways that actually need to be corrected. And when you nurture and love and give them a safe place, you change the neural pathways. You're changing the biological connections in the child's brain. In the same way that when you love and care for somebody, and those children, to change those neural pathways and create new connections, and how much more biological than that, how much more is it the same when we're adopted into Christ's family and he's changing our hearts and our spirits and our workings by the way he loves and cares and nurtures for us? It's a very beautiful now. Thanks for bringing that up, Dave, because it truly is this unique parallel of not being biological but having every right of what it means to be biological. Yes, one of the uh, cultural references that he's doing here is this adoption is different from the adoption in the way we think. Yeah. Uh, because the Greek... In, in the days of Rome, the way they adopted there is uh, that's different from our adoption here. Adoption here can be taken away from you. Yep. And it can be rescinded. Mm -hmm. But in the Greek, in, in the Roman adoption, when they adopted someone, they actually made them a permanent part of their family mm -hmm. in a way that it's not supposed to be taken away. Right. And so, uh, I don't know if you guys ever remember the movie Ben Hare. It occurs in that where he is he gets enslaved. He's a Jewish man. He gets enslaved, and the the ship goes down. He's rowing in the ship as a slave, and he saves the captain of the ship, or the son, or something of the captain of the ship. Anyway, the guy is grateful, and he adopts uh, Judah Ben Hare. Yeah, and and gives him a signet ring, and with that ring, all he had to do is go anywhere in Rome. And even though he was Jewish, if anyone tried to attack him or tried to do anything, all he had to do was show him that signet ring and yeah. say, this man is now my father, and I have all the rights of a Roman citizen. He yep. can do nothing to me. And so this is what this kind of adoption is. God, God is bringing us into his family never to unadopt us. It's amazing. It's permanent. Absolutely. Amen to that. That's amazing. Josh? It also says as sons, like this letter was written, uh, written and read to women as well. Yeah. And the promise or the inheritance was passed down to men, right? So uh, it's kind of a big deal. Um, it's like back then, women didn't have much to hope for apart from a, a man. Uh, and in God's providence and design, that's just how it, how it works, right? Absolutely. So, um, the distinctions of Role, I guess. So, but but he's showing again, like equality. Uh, Absolutely. Creatures. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, it was such a cultural divide there, but the fact, like you said, being read by both parties and the implications of it applied to both men and women were such a huge thing from a cultural context at the time. Yeah. You do a damage. You do the text damage if you thought, well, it should be sons and daughters. Right. Because the adoption analogy didn't apply this. That's right. In that regard, the, the importance of inheritance and blessing to a son is what matters. So it's not like women are excluded. Right. They're included in this idea of sonship. Yeah, that's a really good point. And inheritance. It would kind of break down the weight of that analogy if you kind of worried it that way. Yeah, great point. Okay, finally, we'll wrap up um, in verse 5 and 6 by being blessed by Christ alone. Again, as the reminder from the text, uh, for adoption to himself, the sons through Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And I love how this, um, you know, this, this, this structure, you're going to see it time and time again, it's all about praise as well. You know, we're commanded at the end of this to give praise because of what has been done for us. Um, so as we wrap up, we're reminded and encouraged in verse 6 that the blessings of salvation are freely given and comes to us without any human cause. And it's tied very much back into that weight of that adoption analogy and how there's no DNA, there's no biological representation, but we're adopted with every right and merit that comes with it, just as that same analogy from Ben-Hur and what we hear from, from this. I mean, seriously, <laughs> when is the last time anything has come your way without some effort of human cause? When does it come? We were joking in the car yesterday, but they've been waiting on the million dollars from Publisher Clearinghouse for 30 years. You know, that's nothing from our human cause. But seriously, when has nothing, when has something come your way from no human cause ever? Just think about that. It, it hasn't. I love how Brian Chappell phrases it. Again, so many really beautiful things in this commentary. Over and over in this passage, Paul makes the point of divine cause alone. God chose us in Christ, not because of anything in us. It was his choice to put us in union with his son. In fact, human initiatives seems to be purposefully undercut when we're told that God chose us before creation. And before we could do anything of merit, before we could do anything, God chose to love us. And where else do we see Paul discuss adoption in his writings? This kind of by Christ alone, adoption is very, very intertwined. Certainly back in Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears, with witness, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. And you know what's interesting there? Again, time and time again, we see that same framework repeated and the paradigm of the indicative preceding the imperative because he reminds us of who we are. And then, <laughs> then he says, we're perpetually and lovingly reminded of who we are in Christ before we're reminded of how we should live in light of this reality. And he says it again here. We're reminded of who we are. Then he says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. So Paul continually reminds us who we are in Christ and what Christ has purchased for us 
before we're reminded and instructed on how we should live. And we keep that in our minds. Because if we don't, if we flip-flop that paradigm, we're going to come tizzying down on ourselves because we feel like we can't do anything. We have to remember who we are in Christ before this. So what are the overarching themes in these six verses? The Father's purpose? It was all by His design, by His plan, by His provision, and He has it in His control. And the thought of this absolutely incredible and almighty love should drive us to a tremendous outpouring of praise to our Father. And it says that in verse 6, praise. And that's the Father's purpose. That's the first six verses of Ephesians. So, any closing comments? I know we wrapped up maybe just a few minutes early, but I wanted to leave just a little time if anybody has any closing comments about these first six verses. It's pretty amazing how much is contained just within the first six verses of Ephesians and what we're actually going to be getting into. I still like the analogy that, who's that preacher? About the thief on the cross. Oh, Alistair Begg. Yeah, I love his analogy on the thief on the cross. The one where, you know, the, the thief on the cross gets to heaven and he kind of jokingly says, you know, it was the, the supervisor angel comes over and he says, you know, by what merit do you do you come here? And he says, nothing. He says, well, let's let's get to the um, the doctrine of scripture. Do you do you understand that? No. How about the doctrine doctrine of justification by faith? Never heard of it in my life. He said, on what basis do you come here? He said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Amen. Amen. And I mean, it's truly by nothing that we have done. It's truly by everything that Christ has done. Anything else, guys? Either clear as mud or confused as all get out. One of the two. Jeremy, in, in the first verse, I, I really appreciated because I came to understand this as I was a new Christian. It pointed out, it said, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Mm. And it was pointed out that people who are Christians and they can't stop being, even though there might be times they wanted to. Yeah. But he's keeping us and he's working that uh, in us. Absolutely. That we will be faithful. Absolutely. What a glorious thing to know that. It is, isn't it? We're promised that, and he will he will do it. You know, our you know if you were in the sanctification class, you know our you know you look at um it's not like this progressive line up you know that we're going to continue to progress and progress. It looks more like a you know a patient that Larry and I might see in the ER that's got you know pretty sick heart that you know the going like this right here kind of up and down and up and down everything like that. That's probably the way our 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 path goes through our Christian life. But we are assured we're assured because he's faithful to us. It's pretty impressive. Jeremy, you want to close us in prayer? Sure. Thanks. Father, we come before you just in awe of your, uh, your grace, mercy, your steadfast love that you've shown us through Christ, just the many blessings that you pour out upon us through him. I pray, Father, that you would help us uh, just to be more and more uh, aware uh, of the blessings that you've given us through him. Uh, we know uh, that we get to see those uh, most clearly through your scripture. So I pray that you would help us, even in our uh, time of, of Bible reading, uh, to read it as uh, your children, looking for those many blessings that you've promised us in heavenly places. Help us, Father, as we move on uh, now to uh, uh, the, our main service. I pray for Ryan as he brings us your word. Just uh, help us, Father, to come before you with hearts uh, full of praise and worship. 
even as we've just looked at uh, these first six verses in Ephesians, help us then to move forward into our worship service, ready to just enjoy you and glorify you uh, through uh, all the elements that we get to partake of. And we just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.